Hello, so now we're going to listen to our reading from Andy Button and then Jeremy is going to speak to us. We are looking at the Pharisee and the tax collector. I would recommend getting your ears open and your heart open, ready to hear what God has got to say. Okay, so this reading is from uh, Luke chapter 18 and we've got um, uh, Jesus... Um, talking so we've got he also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee and the other a tax collector the pharisee standing by himself prayed god i thank you that i am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Andy. Uh, let's just pray before I get into the word. So, Lord, I just, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that, that we have access to the very words that you spoke to your disciples and, and, and everything that you taught them. Lord, I want to thank you that as we've been going through this series on the parables, that, that you've been revealing to us your wisdom and you've been revealing it to us through the eyes of, of first century believers, those that, that heard your teaching for the first time. And, and Lord, I pray that, that as, we, as we dig into this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, that, that you, will, you will help us, Holy Spirit, to open our, not just our minds, but our hearts to hear your word for all time and hear your word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening, everyone. Um, so, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is, is Jeremy. I'm one of the, the elders at Real Life Church, and I'm married to, to Becky. I can't see her right now, but she's on one of the other screens. And we have three children, Joel, who's 18 and at Nottingham University at the moment, uh, Caitlin, who is 16 in her first year of A-levels, and, and then Isaac, who, who's just going, going into year five and uh, we're starting to, to imagine what secondary school will look like for him. Now, this, this is one of my, well, it's one of our favorite parables. If you think about, um, about contemporary society, this is, this is one of Jesus's parables that is, is most well known. And I really want to dive into it because I think, I think a lot of us sometimes miss the, the nuance um, of this parable because we don't necessarily put ourselves in the, the shoes of the original audience. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little story about Becky's and, and my honeymoon. And Becky doesn't know I'm going to share the story, um, but I promise you it's going to be enjoyable. So, so, so Becky and I were, were married in, uh, in 1998, and we didn't have a whole lot of money at the time. So, so what we did was I sat down with 
with my parents and a couple of my friends, and we planned a sort of road trip through South Africa. And we, we found a couple of, of, um, of places that we'd never been to before as, as a couple, either of us. And one of the places that we found ourselves at was called Golden Gate Bridge National Park. Sorry, Golden Gate National Park. Golden Gate Bridge is in another country. Golden Gate National Park in, in the Orange Free State. And, and when you drive through the, the landscape of the Free State, you come into this area um, at the top of the Drakensberg, the highest that you can get in South Africa. And you start seeing these, these majestic hills and mountains rising up out of the, out of the uh, sort of um, plain. Um, and they're made out of this red and yellow sandstone with very flat tops. And we found ourselves in a, a, a small resort at the bottom of one of these, these mountains. And, and I remember when we got there, the night we got there, I said, tomorrow morning, I'm going to be climbing one of these. I'm going to climb the one just behind our little bungalow. But I woke up in the morning feeling slightly feverish, slightly off, not so great. But I thought to myself, there's no way that I'm not going to um, climb this this mountain. So, so off I sat all by myself. And I know what you're thinking, that was stupid. Um, how can you be climbing something all by yourself? But I was young, I was naive and, and perhaps a little um, trigger happy, but off I went climbing, climbing this mountain. And it was a gentle, gentle gradation and it got steeper and steeper and steeper, but actually it was fine most of the way. But as I said, these particular mountains and hills have these very vertical sides near the top made out of sandstone. And I remember getting to, the, to that sort of interface between the, the slope the, with, with bush on it and then the, the steep section. And that by then I was sweating, I was not feeling great, my hands were shaking and I was nervous, I was scared. Um, if there was a mate with me, I would not have said it, but, but, but I was scared. And yet I, I, I found a, a way through it, climbed over the top, and I got to the top of this, this, this mountain and standing on top of this flat plain, took a walk around, and I just had this, this sense of, of elation, happiness, um, sort of a sense of achievement. And, um, and as I looked around, I realized, as, as, as well as I've done, there's a bunch of mountains here that are way higher than the one I've just climbed. And then I thought about getting down again to my wife who hasn't woken up yet, uh, my new wife. And um, we, we had a, a lovely day when I made it down. But I'm gonna come back to that story in a bit. There's a, there's a reason I shared it. And I think there's a challenge around mountains in, in this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. So when we look at the parable, there, there's this obvious contrast that Jesus has set up for us, hasn't he? He's, he's got He's got the tax collector and the Pharisee as two very obvious contrasting characters in the story. And, and then there's a, a more subtle contrast, but it's an important one to consider. And it's, it's the contrast between, between the judgment of men and the judgment of God. And you'll see that as we, we go through um, talking through the parable. And you must remember that the parables were always controversial. They, they set out to challenge the accepted understanding of, of how God and, and men related. And, and this one is, is no different to that. So, so Jesus was very intentional. He chooses this, 
this first character, the, the Pharisee. And, um, you know, for us, we think about the Pharisee and, and we, we think about them as being proud, arrogant um, people that look down upon others. And, and that's pretty much what the opening line of, of, the, of the parable says. It's, it's um, Jesus, these are Jesus's greatest opponents. They are those that thought of themselves as, as righteous. And, and then you have the tax collector. Now, maybe in, in our day and age, the tax collector's not that bad a thing, but, but I know a bunch of you will understand this, that, that the tax collector in first century Israel was an ethnic Jew who worked for Rome. And he was despised by everyone in his community as a, as a traitor, as a thief, as, as a liar. One who had turned his back on his people and sought to profit from their misfortune. And I, I can't make this, this clear enough. Nobody had pity on the tax collectors. Absolutely nobody. They, they even had their own very special category when it came to evil. And I reckon if, if Jesus was to tell this story in our culture today, in our, our context, he would, he, would have used, he would have used another character. It may have been a, a prostitute or a, a drug dealer or, or perhaps a, a serial murderer. They, they, were, they were despised. They were despised more than any other. But what about the Pharisee? The truth is, even though we feel that they are um, the enemy. The truth is that in, in that day and age, they, they were admired for the most part by Jewish people. They were strict observers of the Mosaic law. They, they dedicated themselves to the study of scripture. They, they were not primarily political, but, but because of their enormous religious power, they, they in effect wielded massive political influence they were, they were, there were only about 3,000 of them at any one time. In terms of, of passion, they were probably more balanced than the zealots that, that were willing to take up arms against their oppressors. They were more orthodox than the mystical essence. They, they believed in the afterlife and the resurrection. Unlike the Sadducees, they did tithe very strictly. They did fast regularly, and they did dedicate themselves to the service of God. In many ways, they were probably very close to what Jesus would have taught a true believer should look like. Yes, they were arrogant, they were aloof, but a lot of that was because they did everything that they could to avoid being tainted by sin. And the people respected them, they admired them. If, if the tax collector could be compared to a, a mass murderer in our society, I'd I'd imagine that the Pharisee would, would be thought of as similarly to a, a, a justice of the Supreme Court, one, one who had dedicated their lives to, to justice and gave regularly to some of the world's most desperate causes and was a school governor and was a scout leader and was everything else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They would, were highly admired and respected. So for... For Jesus to paint a picture of a, a respectable Pharisee being snubbed by God while a, a tax collector was accepted was, was massively controversial. As far as everyone else was concerned, there was no argument 
absolutely no argument that the Pharisee was more righteous than the tax collector. No way was it, was it different. But in this parable, Jesus claims that the tax collector goes home justified, not the Pharisee. And this is the, the first important point that I, I want to make. This parable is about salvation. It's not about answered prayer. It's not, it's not about honor or respect. It's about salvation. Jesus doesn't say that the tax collectors went home with his prayer answered. He doesn't say that he went home with the renewed respect and admiration of all who were in the temple. He says that he went home justified, justified. That's, that's the key word in this parable. And, and justification, I, I was taught that the easiest way to understand what justification means is this little phrase. It's just as if I had never done it. And it's, it's important to understand that, that in a biblical sense, justification doesn't mean that you are right. It means that you were wrong. It means that you were guilty, but you have been made right. It's just as if I had never done it. Secondly, I, I wanted to highlight that the basis of this justification is, is never on personal merit. The, the judgment of man in this parable would have been that the Pharisee is far closer to God than the tax collector. If, if anyone is going to be justified, it will be him. But God justifies, sorry, um, yeah, it would be the Pharisee, but God justifies the tax collector. And the tax collector has done nothing, absolutely nothing to deserve it. We look at that and, and we think, well, well, maybe there's, 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 something, there's something else in, in the story. Maybe there's something else that, that we, we're not seeing at first glance. Perhaps, perhaps the, Phar the Pharisee is rejected because he's not all that he, he says he is. Perhaps he's, he's lying about what he's really like. Maybe, maybe he does tithe and, and maybe he does fast, but, but what else is he doing that, that he doesn't tell us about? He's putting up a front. And, and maybe the tax collector is actually a, a Robin Hood type character. Maybe he's, he's someone who was forced into this base vocation by his oppressors and he could see no other way, but, but that he's using his position as a way of getting hold of money that he can then use to, to care for his people. And we, we kind of try and think, okay, well, if Jesus is, is justifying the tax collector, there must be another reason for it. But, but let's not forget that this is, this is a parable that Jesus told. These aren't real people. Jesus told us what he wanted us to know about these people to make a very clear point. And the, the picture that he paints is not any more than, than that of, of a man who is highly respected in society and one who is universally hated. So God's justification has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with merit. And that, that brings me then to the prayer. So we've got these two characters standing in, in contrast to each other and, and their prayers couldn't be more, more contrasting either. That they both pray to God 
but the Pharisee approaches God on the basis of his own credentials, doesn't he? He, he, makes, a, he makes a point of, of thanking God that he is he's not like other men and that he fasts and he tithes and he therefore has a right to approach God boldly. He's standing at the front of the temple, his shoulders are out, his head is up and he's telling God about how amazing he is and, and that he has a right to be in God's presence. And everyone in the temple would have probably been thinking that's absolutely the place that the Pharisee should have. And uh, he, he, he should be at the front and he has a right to be in God's, God's presence. And, um, and then we have the tax collector that does nothing of the sort. He, he stands far to the back of the temple and he, he doesn't raise his head. He can't even lift his eyes in the presence of God. And he, he beats his chest. And his, his confession is that he is a, a sinner and, and that he has no right to come into God's presence. That, that, you kind of think, well, if you, you feel that way, why are you even here? But he, 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 he's, he's saying he has no right to be in God's presence, but he pleads, he pleads for God to have, have mercy on him, regardless. And his prayer is really worth looking at. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This prayer reminds me of some other characters in the Bible who respond in a very similar way when they become aware of God, when they find themselves in his presence. Job, for instance. In Job 1 verse 8, it's, it's made clear that, that he is righteous, that, that God thinks he is righteous. God even, even suggests to Satan that he goes and checks out Job as an example of, of a righteous man. And and when Job goes through massive amount of suffering, he has some friends that come and, and counsel him. And, and these friends ask him to, to think quite seriously about the possibility that the suffering has come upon him because of something that he has done. And Job completely disagrees with them. He says, there's no way. There's absolutely no way that I have done anything to, to bring this upon me. But... When God speaks to him directly, he changes his tune. His countenance changes in the presence of God. And in Job 42, verse 6, he says this. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and, and repent in dust and ashes. We see the same thing with, with Isaiah. Isaiah. He receives a vision of the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and he hears the praise of the seraphim all around him. But the effect of, Isaiah, the effect of all of this on Isaiah is, is not one of self-satisfaction or, or pride that, that this vision has been granted to him, but rather it was devastating. It was devastating to him. In Isaiah 6 verse 5, he says, And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It was only after a coal was taken 
from the altar and held against his lips to purge him from that uncleanness, that he was able to stand upright and, and respond positively to, to God's call to him for, for service. And it's not just in the Old Testament. We look at Jesus' own disciples when, when now and again, while he was walking with them, they, they, they got a glimpse of his, his true nature. They, they had a similar reaction. For instance, when Jesus performed the miracle of the, the great catch of fish in Galilee, Peter responds to him in Luke 5 verse 8. He says, depart from me, for I am a, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And even the Apostle John, after living a long life, serving Christ, being persecuted, refusing to die, miraculously um, avoiding death, and finally being imprisoned on the the Isle of Patmos, when he receives his famous revelation of Christ's glory, he responds similarly. He sees the risen Lord standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks, and he, he fell at his feet as though dead. In Revelation 1 verse 17, that's what he says. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. The tax collector sounds way more like these people than the Pharisee. So even though the Pharisee assumes to be in God's presence, his, his lack of self-awareness is evidence that he is in fact not. The structure of the tax collector's prayer is so important. He says, God, and he says, a sinner, God, a sinner. When he becomes aware of God's character, when he is in God's presence and sees the magnificence of his God, he becomes profoundly aware of his own character and the huge divide between the two. You see, no matter how you rank, according to human judgment, when you come into the presence of God, you'll by necessity become very aware of your own nature, your sinfulness, your unworthiness, that absolute inadequacy of all of your efforts to be righteous when compared to the overwhelming beauty and, and horror of his holiness. Jesus says that he came for the sick. He came for the lost. He came for those that were unworthy. He came for those that that when they found themselves in, in God's presence, they were filled with, with shame and, and fear. And, you know, when I was climbing that mountain, that was a small mountain. And I remember the, the feeling going up there. I climbed some others. I remember uh, I went with, with a bunch of the guys from the church to, to climb Triffin in um, Snedonia. And, and there were a couple of places there where I thought, oh, man, this is this is crazy. I don't know if, if, if this is safe. Um, and yet we, we carried on. Um, but when I got to the top, I thought, I don't know if I can climb anything more significant than this. When I look at the, the Pharisee, I see someone who climbed a significant mountain to get to the level of righteousness that they got to. And they probably felt a, 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 a huge sense of achievement at getting there. And in the tax collector, you see someone who, who was probably just in the foothills and, and perhaps got distracted by a pub before he even got to, to a part of the challenge 
um, of the mountain and, and found himself staying there at the pub. And so the, the Pharisee and the tax collector are miles apart. The Pharisees worked way harder. He's achieved far more. But I think there's something more to it. I think the problem is the Pharisee thought he had reached God's standard. But the tax collector understands God's standard far better than the Pharisee ever could. Because of this phrase in the middle of his prayer, be merciful to me. The tax collector not only knows God's presence and acknowledges that he doesn't deserve to be there in the least, but he also acknowledges that the only way he can be there is if God is merciful to him. He knows what God has done to deal with his sin problem. You see, the word that the tax collector uses here for be merciful to me is actually the, the verb form of, of the word used for mercy seat. So, so the word for mercy seat is hilasterion, and the verb form of that is hilastethi, which uh, he uses here. So it would be a far more awkward translation, but it could be translated as this. Treat me as one who comes on the basis of the blood shed on the mercy seat as an offering for sins. Now, I'm aware that, that some of you aren't quite sure what that means, but let me explain a little bit to you. So in, in the temple, there was a, a holy place and there, then there was a, a, a very holy place called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was, was a box called the Ark. And in that box was the two tablets of the law of Moses that were that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. And this box was covered in gold, and then it had a, a top which had two angels on it. And they, they were turned outward and their wings were over the, over the top of the box. And between the wings of the angels was symbolically meant to be the presence of God. And this was a picture for a worshiper. If you imagine from the perspective of a worshiper looking up over the ark, over the box, over that covering and between the wings where God's presence is, imagine him looking down at you over the law of Moses, which you have broken, knowing that you would need to be judged by that law, which you had broken. But on the top of that box was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the place where once a year, the high priest would pour the blood of a sacrifice, which would symbolically cover the law with the blood of one who died in the place of those that had broken that law. So now what God sees as he looks down towards the worshippers Instead of the broken law is the innocent blood which has been spilt as a payment for sin. It's this blood that was the basis of God's mercy towards his people. And it's this blood that is the basis of God's mercy towards his people. And this is what the Pharisee got wrong. The parable is told before Christ is crucified, but it shows that the tax collector understands 
the basis of the temple system of worship. He understands the basis of God's mercy towards his people far better than the Pharisee does. And he understands the, the perfect sacrifice that the whole system points to. For the, the blood of lambs and, and goats would never have been sufficient to, to cover the sin of men. It was always a, a picture, a reminder to Israel of the mercy of God towards them and the perfect sacrifice that would come one day in their Messiah. And Jesus was using this parable to teach about salvation and remind the people that salvation is by faith alone and dependent on God's merciful work. So the Pharisee was in the foothills right underneath this massive mountain that the Pharisee had, had the, the tax collector was at the bottom at, looking at where the Pharisee was. But what God had mercifully done for him, he had cleared the mist and the, the tax collector could see that the Pharisee hadn't gotten near the highest of mountains where God was residing. He hadn't got near close to the presence of God. But the Pharisee couldn't see it. And I think for, for, for many of us, we, we have that, that sense of awe. Oh, my goodness. God, you are so holy. How is it that I could ever come into your presence? And we know that the only way was if God came down the mountain and met with us. And that's what Christ did for us. He came down the mountain all the way to the bottom, to the lowest part, to those that were, were, were unworthy, were lost, didn't know how to even start on this journey towards God. He came for them. He came for you. He came for me. And he, he, he performed this miracle of opening our eyes to the, the great challenge before us and then showing us the mercy of the cross of Christ. This is the third parable that we have taught on salvation. So far, we've, we've learned that, that God goes to great lengths to rescue his sheep. He, he is the good shepherd who, who doesn't let even one go astray. He goes after the ones that the, the other shepherds would leave because it, it's just not worth going after them. And then secondly, we learned that, that God does not stop calling out to those who, who would be saved, not until the very, very, very end of this life, either, either, if, either that coming through death or that coming through his return. It's never too late. He never stops calling you to his work. So don't give up praying for those that, that you love and care for. Remember, it's not 5 p.m. yet. And today, we learn that no one is too far from God to be saved. No one is too evil to be saved. No one is too depraved to be brought into the kingdom of God because the means of salvation is not our own righteousness or good works, but rather God's good work in Christ and that mercy of his extended towards us. Don't give up. Anyone can be saved 
for those of you that are praying for your family or your friends and 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 you just think there is no hope do not give up when i was saved i remember some of my friends coming to me that were in the church and saying we we continued praying for you but honestly we we really thought there was absolutely no way that you would ever become a christian that you would ever get saved that you would ever meet god but they continued to pray faithfully and and I had this experience where I thought I was absolutely fine. And uh, if God was going to take out a measuring stick on mankind, I'd, I'd probably probably pass, not realizing that, that his standard was so much higher than anything mankind could ever achieve. But I had that experience one night when I realized that there was absolutely no way that I could ever meet God's holy standard. And I surrendered. I humbled myself to him and I asked him to come into my life and, and save me. Don't ever give up. Don't judge. You're not the one who decides where God extends his mercy. Don't put yourself in the place of the Pharisee where you would walk on the other side of the road or look down on the tax collector when he is praying contrite in the back of the temple. Don't judge. There may be some of you who've, who've been avoiding God because you think you're not good enough or because you're not ready to give up your sin, which you enjoy too much, and you think that's what you've got to do. You've got to pack that all up and put it off to one side, sort yourself out, go and have a shower, put on your best Sunday clothes, and then come into church and then come in and spend time with God. You think that God is waiting for you to clean up your act before he is willing to accept you. And I'm telling you that that, is, that has never been, never been the basis of God's relationship with us. That's the beauty of the gospel. It stands out head and shoulders above, above any other religious teaching that you, you have heard. This is a God that comes down the mountain to you and extends his mercy to you. His presence makes us painfully aware of our sin. But at the same time, makes us aware that he has provided for our sin, that he has paid for our sin, and that he loves us despite our sin. And if that's you now, I'm praying for you that you would, you would accept his mercy, that he would show you what you need, and that you would accept his mercy now in Jesus' name. Second thing I'd like to say is that the arrogant do deceive themselves. It's absolutely true. That's, that's the nature of the, the Pharisee's error. There was a fog over his mind. He was standing on the top of what he thought was a mountain, but he couldn't see that he was actually only in the foothills at the bottom of the Himalayas with Everest all the way up at the top and completely out of his reach. He, he forgot that to, to break the smallest part of the law is to break the whole law. And therefore, no matter how self-righteous he was, he was still under judgment unless he acknowledged that he depended on God's mercy. But does that mean that the arrogant will not be saved? I don't think so. I don't think that that was the point Jesus was trying to make in this parable. In fact, Simeon, who believed Jesus, was a Pharisee. 
And Paul, the greatest evangelist of the early church, was a Pharisee. And Jesus himself, he ends the parable with this line, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says that those who are arrogant will be humbled. And I think in that, there is hope for the self-righteous, for the arrogant. Part of God's saving work is to humble you. That's what he did to me. He humbled me first. To, he brought me to a place where, where I was in God's presence. And in that place, my, my true nature was revealed and I, I fell on my knees and I, I trembled before him. And, and then he put a coal to my lips and he'll do the same for any of you. And he'll purge you and he'll commission you for his service. He saves you. He saves even the most arrogant among you. So for those of us that, are, are, that love God, can I just please encourage you to never, ever, 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 ever forget the basis of your salvation. Stay humble. Desire to be in God's presence. Let his presence overwhelm you. Allow him to reveal what's really going, inside, going on inside of you. Reveal your true nature. And then let him show you again the true beauty of his saving work. Allow him to, to commission you for his work. To show grace and mercy to, to all who you meet. And to extend his grace to them. And invite them to, to find out about this God who comes down the mountain. May God grant our prayer to be more like Paul, who, who, who knew he was seated in heavenly places. He knew he was seated in heavenly places, but he never forgot how. And he never fell back into the habit of arrogance or, or self-righteousness. I'm going to pray. We're going we're gonna to sing and I would ask that, that while I'm praying and, and while we're singing, you please just spend a little bit of time thinking. You've probably thought about it already. How am I like a Pharisee? And how am I like the tax collector? And Lord, show me what you want to say to me through this parable. So Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that when we look at it Simply, the message seems very simple and obvious. But when we dig a little deeper, we realize that you have so much to say to us about the people around us, about ourselves, but mostly about you. And Lord, I pray that in the hearts of everyone who's listening tonight, that they will, they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that you are the God who extends grace and mercy to them, that you are the God who, who loves them despite everything that they've done, that even those who are self-righteous and think that they are, are above their fellow people, that you will humble them and show them what a great work you have done. And that, that will bring joy into their hearts. So, Lord, I pray for your joy to overflow in the hearts of your believers. 
I, I pray for, for joy and mercy to overflow in the hearts of those who are coming to know you now. In Jesus' name, amen.